This is Mark Miller, host of An Innovator's Journey to DevOps. An Innovator's Journey is a series of interviews profiling software development thought leaders and DevOps practitioners. We highlight real people, real stories, and real solutions for building modern software. In today's journey, we talk with J. Paul Reed, Build Release Engineering, DevOps, and Human Factors Consultant. Paul Reed has over 15 years experience in build engineering, release management, software configuration management, and process design with a focus on discovering business requirements and integrating those needs to get products shipped faster and more reliably. In this innovator's journey, we talk with Paul about how he got started, his work within the DevOps community, and what he hopes to leave as his legacy. I want to start off with the basics. Were you interested in technology as a child? Yes, I was. Um, I actually there's a there's a photo of me on a on a blog post. I should dig this one up where I'm staring at an Apple IIe, and I I think I'm in elementary school, and and the look on my face uh, is just this one of of wonderment and like oh you know just just a whole new world opening up. I learned to program Basic in, uh, in fifth grade. Uh, and then uh, in high school, actually, it's kind of funny that I, I'm doing consulting now. I, I was actually doing programming and consulting in high school, too. So so I've had a, a long sort of uh, love uh, of technology and, and the Internet. And, um, and I, uh, you know, in, in that regard, when I went off to school, I always knew I, I was going to get a computer science degree. So I didn't have a lot of the confusion that sometimes people have about, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Where did you go to school? I went to school at uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, so right near the beach, uh, wonderful weather, great campus, great computer science department. In fact, I, I was just down there last week guest lecturing for the software capstone classes. So these are the students that are finishing up their final software engineering projects, uh, and they're going to be graduating, I actually think, in a couple of weeks now. Uh, so it was actually a lot of fun to go give them advice, uh, return to the campus, see what changed, because uh, it has grown a lot, um, but give them some advice as well. That was a lot of fun. When did you graduate? I graduated in 2003. That was after the main movement of the internet. I'm thinking the internet, as far as a major push, was the late 90s. So you came in after the transition. Uh, yeah, so I can tell you it's kind of funny. I, and I was telling this story, a, a little known fact. I actually, um, the first year at Cal Poly, I kind of, I actually got kicked out because of academic probation. And then later when I, I came back to campus, I was on the dean's list like three or four times in a row. But the problem was that this was back in uh, when I arrived in the late 90s where the dorms had just been uh, wired with Ethernet. We would just stay up like all night playing Doom and just fooling around on the Internet because it was, you know, I was coming from modems, right, uh, you know, uh, 56K modems. And so having that like at your fingertips was a little distracting. But, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it was right at the beginning of uh, when I was in school, Pets.com and, and actually that, that whole first internet bubble occurred. When you graduated from school, was there a job waiting for you? Did you move right into tech? 
I so there wasn't a job waiting for me. I actually uh, spent a summer in Washington State, up across across the Puget Sound from uh, Seattle in a little town called uh, Port Townsend. Actually, so I did that for the summer. Um, I, I finished off a couple of uh, final reports that I had due. So got all that done, and then I actually ended up looking for a job, and I found a job. Uh, my first role was actually at VMware, uh, and I worked on their uh, installer for their ESX product, which if you know ESX, if you're familiar with it, that's their not hosted hypervisor. Uh, it's actually their kind of enterprise-level hypervisor. So the installer for it was actually installing an operating system. That was my first role, and that's actually how I got into uh, installers and release engineering. And, and, and I actually had had experience with release engineering uh, right out of high school. I, I worked with the Mozilla Project as an, as an intern uh, the summer between uh, high school and college as on their release engineering team. And I really fell in love with release engineering then, uh, and then I got to sort of return to it in my first first job out of school. And, and so I I've been doing that ever since. I, I've I really uh, loved that functional role within the organization, but I've also enjoyed seeing what that has turned into, especially with, you know, DevOps has, has changed to that conversation about what is release engineering. So so it's been it's been interesting to watch the evolution of that role and, and those functions within the software delivery process. When did you first hear about DevOps? Do you remember hearing about it? I do. So, uh, you know, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, I, I was just reminiscing about this the other day. Uh, so, so I've been a consultant for about four years now, and I started a podcast uh, about three years ago. In fact, we just wrapped up the the last episode of the podcast ever, the final episode. Uh, and kind of coincidentally, we did the episode on burnout. Uh, the podcast was called The Ship Show. You can Google for it to find find the, the archives. But one of the first episodes was, is DevOps just release engineering for Web 2.0? Mm-hmm. My co-host at the time really brought up this idea of DevOps. Um, Sasha Bates, who was a consultant at the time in Minneapolis and really big in the, the Minneapolis operations community, kind of introduced me to the community and the term. And so with that episode of the podcast, I, you know, I was uh, at first – pretty skeptical about this whole DevOps thing. And it, and I was really actually lucky to have Sasha there uh, with me and with us to talk through all of that, mostly because her background was very operations heavy. I had done operations as a release engineer uh, in the context of like build farms and keeping all of those things running. I had been, a, uh, still am a Linux nerd. I had been running Linux since I was you know, 15 or 16, uh, back when Linux was, was very, still very new. And so I understood, you know, I understood Linux. I understood, you know, some of the operational consideration that ops people have to go through, but I'd never really been an ops person. So I initially was a little skeptical that it was anything new because a lot of the things that we talk about in DevOps, you know, using version control and managing your artifacts, those are things that's like, we did that in release engineering. Like, well, this is not new. But I think, you know, over time, I, I began to realize not only is there something to the whole DevOps sort of ethos and movement, but it actually is not just release engineering. I think there's a huge component uh, in terms of the activities and patterns, especially if you look at continuous delivery, organizations that are really successful at continuous delivery actually really invest in release engineering. So from that perspective, I think release engineering is, is as important as it ever was. But 
DevOps brought a bunch of other things to the table. Now, I'm now firmly on the side that, that DevOps is more than just release engineering. It's an important aspect to our industry because it's highlighting things that, that are really important and that need to be addressed if we want to, to deliver better software faster, uh, you know, with less security issues and all of these other things that we hear about the unicorn, the DevOps unicorns doing. There seems to be two camps. One is a technology camp. And one is a change management transformation camp. Where do you fit into there? That's actually a really interesting parsing. I, I have a lot of kind of mixed feelings about that. I, I think it's a totally accurate parsing. From a technology perspective, like I started as a consultant doing in the trenches release engineering, uh, doing you know make files and packaging and all of that stuff. That is a very DevOps tools, technology-centric tasks, right? Working with teams on on that level. Uh, and I still do that, and I love doing it. I, I think it's really important to uh, be, be in the trenches uh, and still get that perspective, and I love doing that kind of work. But I realized, and this was not a plan. I, I kind of fell into it. I realized about two years into the consulting that I was doing, the conversations we were having were higher up the stack. They were with VPs and C levels, and they were talking about organizational structure, silos, and how we, you know, reorganize people, how we get people to work together. For me, I think I tend to actually span both of those camps in terms of the organizational change, the the culture aspect. Uh, but I, I certainly started in the technology space and the tooling space, and I still have deep roots in that space. I still work in that space. But I, I this year, I just started actually uh, my master's degree in uh, human factors and system safety. And one of the ways it's kind of interesting, a lot of my classmates are like nuclear power engineers and pilots and air traffic controllers and and doctors and and people like that and then there's me you know the the lone web operations person but if you look at that and you look at organizational transformation in that area a lot of that stuff is you know that we talk about like three mile island and chernobyl and and you, you dig into what actually happened there is very applicable in the web operations space. And of course, that's that's not really a technology play at all. That's a, how, how do humans interact with that system? How do they manage that system at a huge scale? Uh, how do they how do they deal with those problems uh, when, when, when they occur? It's interesting that you bring up the idea of at scale. It's one of the things that Gene Kim is trying to work through the community, the idea that this is now an enterprise play, not just a small shop play. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And, and I think, too, a lot of the, you know, one of the one of the problems the DevOps community has and that I think it struggles a lot with is sort of this the definition of DevOps, right? And, and I've done some presentations where I actually have quoted, you know, Jazz Humble's definition and Gene Kim's definition. And I actually did a presentation called The Aesthetics of DevOps, where I surveyed all of those people and asked them, you know, what words come come into your mind when we talk about DevOps? I asked them a few questions that were all around the definition of DevOps. Uh, and that presentation is interesting because you actually see different threads of these DevOps thought leaders, like what they care about. Uh, and, and it's actually interesting to look at, at the definitions and where they enter, intersect and where they actually don't at all. But the one thing that you do see repeatedly, a thread that you do see, is this idea of at scale. Even, you know, the small tech shops or the startups or whatever. Part of the thing that we we found out with cloud infrastructure and architecture is that you you can you can do these things at scale with smaller teams. In some 
since startups uh, were running into these scaling problems just in in many of the same ways that the enterprises are. So what is fascinating to me about that is those organizations were still struggling with the same scaling problems, but because they didn't have other constraints, they were able to really uh, solve some of the, the problems that they were having using some of these, you know, the DevOps uh, kind of ethos that we talk about, these cultural patterns, these tooling patterns. To, uh, to uh, Gene's point, that really demonstrated that you can have the scale and if you look at the problem a little differently, you can apply the same patterns and, and have the same successes. As you're looking now and the community is growing, if somebody, if a technician wants to get in and be part of this community, what kind of skill sets should they be putting together? That's a that's a very good question. I, I recently did a presentation on what does release engineering look like in a DevOps world, uh, because that's kind of my community. Uh, but you hear this a lot, I think, with operations people. I see this a lot with operations people at client sites. This idea that... The entire industry is moving from people that do the thing to people that build the thing that does the thing. So what I mean by that is, you know, release engineers, what we used to do a lot of the time is we would sit down and we might have a build process. And then to release the product, we might get different components from different teams, even sometimes in large products, different build teams. And there would be a release team that would assemble all those components and they would take the time to do that, they would put it all together, and then they would ship it, right? If you're doing something like continuous delivery, and really the business value there is being able to move faster, we see that that business value being espoused by DevOps as well. The, re- the reason people want to do DevOps is to move faster. Like, you literally could not hire enough release engineers because there's just not enough to do that job at the speed you want to do it, at the scale that you would have to do it. Uh, when you're talking about something like Netflix, right, where you're you're deploying to all these instances. What the shift is, is now we see people building continuous delivery pipelines. So this is the same story for ops engineers and configuration management automation, things like that. It's the same for QA engineers, right? If you're doing continuous delivery, you have to, you, you, like you literally cannot manually test it. There's just not enough hours or people, hours of the day or people that you could hire to do it. So we're moving, again, from people doing the thing to people building the thing that does the thing. The biggest hurdle for people that are used to doing the thing and not willing to let go of doing the thing is their framing of that problem. Because I I, I always am worried when I run into someone like that. And it, it's not – it doesn't happen too often. I think I think people are starting to get it. Those roles are going away. And, and so if all of their energy is invested on holding on to – them being the person that does that one thing, the business is going to work on trying to automate that thing. And whether that person gets to automate it or someone else automates their way around them, it's going to happen. And I've seen it with release engineers. I've seen it with QA. I've seen it with ops. Uh, I actually am not one of those people that believes everybody needs to code when we talk about like an education necessarily. But certainly if you're in this industry and you know, you've got a pile of shell scripts that aren't version controlled, that you don't really have a testing methodology for, or you know, you're you're like, ah, you know, I don't I don't want to learn Ruby because I don't want to do Chef or Puppet. Like I'm not doing that. I think the industry is going to be an increasingly tougher place to exist in. A lot of people think of DevOps as no ops. And what we are more towards is it's either new ops 
or transformed ops because what you need to do is your ops people have to start thinking about managing the platforms themselves, not the applications. There was a whole big no ops explosion, and that was what I think a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, and and part of it came from from how I think Netflix described that they have no ops team, right? And so then hashtag no ops. What was interesting is there was sort of a big backlash against that. People who said who talked about no ops said, well, no, we actually don't mean no operations engineers. It just means kind of where we put that expertise is is different, uh, and so there was a great discussion. What I would uh, about like what no ops is and is it actually no ops? And I think you know what you were saying, or the conversations that you're having is is much, much more accurate reality than we don't have ops people. Uh, we have people that that have operations experience uh, that are contributing to the software delivery value stream in a different way than quote unquote ops. So what's interesting is I I think that you're seeing that exact same discussion happening with serverless right now you know, serverless architectures, this idea that the developers don't even need servers. So of course you wouldn't need ops. I don't have an opinion yet. I'm still trying to kind of watch what's going on there. Charity Majors, I think, just presented at the serverless conference. She did a great write-up where she was talking about the the whole serverless thing is sort of a rinse and repeat of no ops in certain ways. And don't you don't need to freak out was was her uh, was her thesis. When you're looking back, Paul, on the work that you've done so far in your career, what are you most proud of? Ooh, that's, that is an interesting question. I would say, so, so I've, done, I've done a few, uh, op- I, you know, I've contributed to some open source projects. I, I, I have some open source projects that are, that I, you know, open sourced as a college student and they're still in use. Uh, there's a professor ratings engine that that actually uh, a bunch of students just worked on giving a new UI to, a new face to. So um, they were working on that, and that's still in use, even though it's code that I wrote in in like 2001. And so there there are certain technical projects that I am proud of. Hold on, you I, did a professor hot or not? I, yeah, it's uh, you can check it out. It's at polyratings.com. It was for, it was just for Cal Poly, uh, and it's kind of funny because it hasn't been updated. Like the, if you go and look at it, like 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 right now, the UI is very old. Like the dates on it refer to like 2012. Like it's very old. And I've been working with students as their senior project to update the UI for it. And so I'm actually really excited that it's kind of having new life breathed into it. But what I was going to say is that I've done a lot of technical projects that I that I am proud of. In a previous life, I, I was was a journalist, and what I mean by that is is when I was in high school, I actually worked for the local newspaper, and I had a number of stories that were on the front page. I did some investigative journalism for the newspaper at the time, and so I've always been very interested in in people's stories, people's narratives, the narratives of communities, uh, how you know how DevOps kind of started and became a thing. Like the the backstory of that is sort of fascinating. The cast of characters, if you will, is is always certainly very fascinating. So I did a a, a report for O'Reilly called DevOps in Practice. Being able to tell those, collect those stories, tell them, discuss them with others. You know, when we talk about cultural change, you know, talk through uh, what Target did or what Nordstrom did or what Netflix did and be able to tell the stories of people that I know at all of those places that have actually become friends because I've um, been privileged to be able to listen to their stories and, and sort of 
look at the narrative threads. I think that is the thing I, I am most proud of is being able to be in the role of, of being able to kind of get some of these, you know, these threads and, and be able to tell those stories is probably the thing I'm most proud of. What legacy would you like to leave as you move through the community now and you think about what you would like to leave behind? What are you aiming for? Some of the work that I enjoy doing the most is working with teams on sort of hard, non-technical problems. Because I have, you know, roots in technology, I, I can have the conversations and, and have a deep dive technical conversation if we need to have one. So I'm lucky to have that experience. Solving, you know, cultural problems. And that's why, I, you know, I find this area about human factors and system safety so interesting. It is very early times in operations and software and the organizations that use those things to operate their infrastructure to a business end. It's still early times for, for them and figuring out what the patterns are and what the anti-patterns are and, and all of those things. So helping, I think, contribute to that space, which the nice kind of interesting thing about that is that it doesn't matter whether you're, you're no ops or you're serverless or what your architecture is. If you are operating a site or a service, ultimately, you know, uh, there's kind of a, a saying in the monitoring community, you need to own your availability. And so these operational problems are in many ways complicated, complex problems. In some cases, they may be wicked problems, if you're familiar with that terminology. Yes. And if we look, yeah, and if we look at other industries, you know, the nuclear industry, the, the power plants, air traffic control, aviation, right, they still wrestle with these problems. And those are industries that have been around forever. So I think it's early times for us. Uh, and, I, and I actually think we're still people, organizations that are, are just coming to DevOps and understanding that and realizing that they haven't even gotten to the, the sort of, because they're still sort of reorganizing uh, people on the chessboard and figuring out, uh, you know, how to how to move faster. And, and I think one of the outcomes of moving faster is, well, uh, moving faster at a larger scale. We've seen this in every other industry. You you have more uh, industry accidents and incidents. And so, how do you know people deal with those? Computers don't deal with those. Organizations deal with those. Computers don't deal with those. So. Figuring that out, I think it's still early times. It's an area I'm super interested in. It's an area that I always am I'm learning stuff about every day uh, because I have to, but also because I find it interesting. And so that's what I, I would like just to leave as a legacy is, is patterns in the industry that uh, makes that easier. It's interesting. Of all the discussions I've had over the years, you're the first one that I think have brought up has brought up the concept of wicked problems. Mm -hmm. And for those of us that have read on it, it makes so much sense. Can DevOps actually deal with wicked problems? Well, so I think that's an interesting question. And, and I uh, was sort of introduced to the concept through my roommate is actually a city planner. And so we have a bunch of friends that are planners, right? And they talk a lot about wicked problems because of the complexities of local politics and zoning regulations and people that have agendas that want things built or not built. And even though it might be better for the area or even the region, you know, we were going through this with um, high-speed rail in San Francisco and in the state of California. Um, so I was introduced to it through that way. Wicked problems are so named because they are difficult to solve. I think one of the things that DevOps done right 
tries to really make apparent is the idea that we live in complexity. We live in a, in a complex space. And so these, these very prescriptive, rigid models for the way we do things, when we talk about best practices, like that's just not a, a world we exist in. We don't exist in a world where there is a singular superlative practice in every case. And I think that's actually one of the things that makes DevOps so, so hard to get, you know, for people to get their heads around is, is that they want a recipe book. They want a cookbook. And I think all of the organizations that are DevOps unicorns that really succeed at that just acknowledge that's not the way it works. Um, and I also think there's sort of a growing understanding that decentralized results in better business outcomes than centralized. And you see this from an architectural perspective of microservices, right? Microservices is all about uh, having a decentralized infrastructure and architecture so that teams can move at the, at the pace that's right for them and they can figure that out and you can still have something that has actually a running hole at the end. But all of that is sort of complexity informed. I don't know that I would say I think that DevOps can solve wicked problems necessarily. I do think that DevOps forces us to confront the reality of the environment that we're in and then offers some patterns that we've seen have been successful because companies have used them to sort of address some of these wicked problems to try to make them more, uh, I don't want to say manageable, but uh, even approachable or, or even in a space where we can try to run experiments to sort of deal with them. I had an interesting statistic thrown at me a couple of weeks ago in a discussion, and they said 5% of the companies know DevOps exists, not necessarily even are working with DevOps, but actually know that DevOps is something, where 95% of the companies have never even heard of it. Does that sound right to you? Oh, man. So my reaction is no. It doesn't sound right. Now, having said that, every DevOps days that I've been to pretty much ever uh, and every event that I've been to that is where we're talking about DevOps, but DevOps days was where I really remember it. A lot of times the question gets asked to the audience in sort of the introductory remarks, raise your hand if, if this is the first time you're, you know, your first DevOps days. And even at events like Silicon Valley, right, where you would assume that people would be in the know about it, you still find to this day half of the audience raising their hand, that they've never been to a DevOps days, they they aren't, wouldn't consider themselves part of the community, they're, they're just sort of figuring it out. I find that number hard to believe, but given sort of the anecdotal data, I think it's possible. I've seen the same yeah. thing. When you and I were at RSAC, doing the DevOps track there, when we polled the audience, I'd easily say 50 to 60% were there as complete novices just trying to figure out what it was. Right. And, you know, it's it's interesting, right? The, the whole, I think part of one of the problems that it's difficult for people coming to the space is even now, you know, I, I uh, people will ask, well, what do you, you know, what's what's your elevator pitch for DevOps, right? And I give the answer, man, I don't know. Like, what do you think it is? And the reason I, I actually do that, uh, I, I don't give them an answer on purpose, 
is because I actually want to understand their framing of the problem. What are the, what are the, where are they approaching, you know, the DevOps elephant? There's that famous photo of like all the people touching the elephant and, you know, the person touching the trunk and they're all blindfolded, right? And the, the person touching the trunk thinks it's a snake and the person touching the, you know, leg thinks it's a tree and the person touching the tail thinks it's a pig, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's that one where that, that somebody took that photo and, and uh, put little uh, thought bubbles and they're all saying it's DevOps, it's DevOps, right? <laughs> and so, so I think actually that is one thing that uh, I think is actually perilous within the DevOps community. Um, in fact, I, I have a thesis that DevOps may actually be disintegrating. And I don't mean disintegrating as like exploding or anything, um, you know, violence like that. I actually mean it in the root form of that word disintegration. Because we have refused to define it, we now have groups that DevOps means different things, and they are promoting that particular view of DevOps. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying any definition is right or wrong. What I'm saying, though, is that makes it difficult for newcomers that are just like, can you just explain it to me? Can I just get, can I get a, a basic definition? And they'll get, you know, they'll ask five people at a DevOps days and they'll get seven definitions. And I think that's problematic, especially um, if we're looking at bringing people into the fold. I think that's frustrating. Now, one thing that I noticed at DevOps Enterprise Summit, actually both years I, I was there, is that a lot of the organizations and the enterprises that are there will talk about DevOps ever so briefly, and then they'll talk about continuous delivery, or they'll, they'll talk about uh, specific monitoring stuff they do. And so what's interesting to me about that is is they kind of, yeah, yeah, talk about DevOps, and they, they use the language, right? But then they immediately go to practices and patterns because those are tangible things. And that's actually, especially if you're trying to do it at scale, I think very useful to do. The only concern there then is is that's a really easy way to optimize the culture part of DevOps as tools and culture just out of the equation. And I think it's widely understood that if you don't include the cultural aspect or the organizational structure aspect sometimes uh, is part of it as well. You're not going to be successful. If you, if you really think it's, it's just tooling and just continuous delivery, you know, you're not going to be successful in, in, a, in a DevOps sort of transformation type story. You have been listening to An Innovator's Journey to DevOps. Today's broadcast was produced by Mark Miller with support from Shannon King, Jessica Dodson, and Derek Weeks. To hear the entire series of interviews, go to sonotype.com and choose Innovators. We'll see you next time as we continue our exploration of real people, real stories, and real solutions for building modern software. And finally, thanks to George Cole and his quintet for taking us home with a little gypsy jazz. Take it home, George. <laughs>